Well, welcome everybody. We're on with Darren Overstreet tonight, who most of us know through the Pacific Northwest up in Seattle, but he's now out in Tampa, Florida, still doing ministry and has been doing ministry for about as long as I've been alive. So certainly somebody I look up to and have been reading a lot, especially Wildfire. Mm. He just published a little more than a year ago now, right, Darren? Yep. Yep. Year and a half ago. I know a lot of our uh, house church leaders out here in Oregon were just at the small church conference and oh, they were okay. able to see some of Darren's content there. And then oh. we'll see who else uh, joins in here tonight. But I believe we're mostly all in Oregon. And uh, it's the Anchor Point Church out in Tampa, right, Darren? Where you're at? All yeah. right. All right. Um, and then, of course, my, my wife is a huge fan of Carla Overstreet as well, Darren's wife. And I would just say as well, um, as we've encountered some progressive theology in the Northwest, they've also been very encouraging towards us as younger ministers and spurring us on, same with the Boyds on this call and others. So we deal with it a lot in the Northwest, progressive theology, and Darren's book talks about it. Um, when we may not realize what it is or what's coming to our churches. So, Darren, thanks so much for joining us. And could you welcome. could you add anything I left out there and give us a quick uh, overview of Wildfire, your book? Uh, sure. Um, well, it's called Wildfire, and I published it. IPI published it for me a year, year and a half ago. It's... Uh, it really was a compilation of my notes. Um, I've been taking notes on this stuff for a couple of years. Uh, I'll give you a little history of me. I, I, I was converted in the Seattle church at the university of Washington and, um, uh, have been in Seattle and in ministry for almost 30 years. So before we moved out to Tampa, so um, we know the Northwest. We know the way the people think. We were raised there. Um, and I think I, two things happened that really encouraged me, I think, or, or made the, I felt like the spirit was calling me to write a book like this. Uh, the first one was COVID, was, was the pandemic. Even started before that, although everything became more acute during COVID, right? things that you didn't think were going to come to your front doorstep as a church leader did. And being, being in Seattle, it was really a, um, I instantly saw the church, <clears throat> not all of the church, but, but uh, on both what I would call maybe the left and right margins of the church really start, really start um, entrenching themselves in polarized ideas. And as a church leader, um, there were things being pressed in on me that I just, I really needed the time to step back and reflect on things that had to do with sexual identity, race, politics, um, all kinds of stuff. But I didn't have the time to do that. It seemed like every time I took a little bit of an introspective approach, I was uh, either criticized or I just, you, you know, I was being pressured by people to um, to agree with their ideas. And um, I just, it was really, really difficult. So I, as a church leader, I had hundreds of hours of conversation with people, my, my staff. Uh, at the same time, though, this is really important. At the same time, I, I also started to be presented with things theologically that I just really stepped back and said, wait a second. Uh, I know this is based on secular ideas. This is based on things like critical theory that has been around a long time. Uh, this is based on a faulty view of sexual identity or whatever, what, whatever it is. And I know you have to really study broadly in college to get your master's, but I, I was concerned because I think I saw the ICOC ministers rushing to get educations in, in a lot of places and coming back without a unifying, um, it seemed like we came back, a lot of us had been bringing ideas into our church that um, 
that are refreshing and different, but I don't know that we've had a really unified hermeneutic on how we read the Bible anymore. I think I assumed that. Um, I assumed, I, I've been in the Church of Christ a long time, and I assume that we've had a very high view of the Bible, which is the Bible is our authority. The Bible is infallible. The Bible is true in all generations. And the Bible has the power to basically change any system, society, person, individual, anything. Uh, we don't need help from society uh, adding to the Bible to change society. So I, I, I'm writing all these notes down and basically um, I, for a lot of reasons, I felt called out in the Northwest and I wrote this book to the encourage from the encouragement of a lot of people. And it's the only one that I know so far in the ICOC that's been written like that. Um, and outside of the ICOC, I believe the evangelical world is farther ahead of us on this stuff. Um, as you guys know, we can tend to act in a bubble. Uh, we can tend to make a lot of assumptions about each other, good and bad. But I think if we lifted our eyes and saw what the evangelical world, even, even the re greater restoration world was talking about, we probably would see that this conversation has been going on a little bit and we're trying to play catch up. So what I was trying to do is just introduce how ideas flow into the church um, in a very diplomatic, respectful, and broad way. And I think I did that. If you've read it, I think I accomplished that. Um, it doesn't lean one side to the other, I think. It just says this is what the threat is for progressive theology. And all progressive theology is. I like Renew's uh, definition. I've always used it. It is a rewriting of essential and important elements of biblical Christianity to fit Western secular values. In other words, it is basically um, letting the culture critique the Bible, not letting the Bible critique the culture. And we're it comes from a lot of places. Uh, I, I used to think it came just from the younger people. It doesn't. Um, but I think what is exposed in my mind is the need for, uh, greater agreement on how we actually read scripture and what we do with it. So that's why I wrote it. I was trying to start a conversation in the fellowship of churches that I really love, that I embrace, or my family is. And I, and it's, uh, and I, and I call it wildfire because, a wildfire um, can start uh, by just a spark, and it can take off, and before you know it, it's engulfed 200, 300,000 acres mm -hmm. very, very quickly. And my my caution to us, or my, my uh, warning to us, if you will, was if we don't pay attention to this stuff, we can turn around or wake up one day, and there are ideas in our church that are at, at one, um, at maybe the less harmful end, just kind of dangerous on the on the more harmful end, heretical, uh, false teachings, absolutely. Um, so um, that's why I wrote it. Um, Tony at IPI and some other evangelists really encouraged me to write it, and I think it's done pretty well. So uh, that's that's what comes from is my. My own understanding of theology, my time in the Northwest, my observation about us as a, when I say us, I'm actually mostly talking about our churches in North America and Western Europe. I think um, this isn't as much of a conversation. It is in South America, Central America, and parts of Asia, but in some parts of the world, um, they just still have a very high view of the Bible and read it and put it into practice and go make disciples and <laughs> all the things that, that I really assumed we were all just still doing. So um, mm -hmm. that that's where it comes from, Joey. I appreciate you gave the definition as well and explained that the book is the diplomatic conversation starter for that. <laughs> I think it does an excellent job of that where many can't define or talk about progressive theology because it sounds like a big word. Um, so you do an excellent job of that. Now, it, so the book has been out for a year and people have been having these conversations. I know you have a, I know you 
have a great view about our overall fellowship and how they've been engaging with it. You have a website coming out soon and videos. Yep. Um, yep. So where, where do you see the conversation now? How are you um, still helping and engaging those conversations? Um, I've been surprised um, in, in a variety of ways. One, I've been surprised at how many people uh really don't want to talk about it yeah um and i i'm trying to think through this here um and i've been surprised at how many people do <laughs> if that makes sense um and i've been surprised at who wants to talk about it. so here's what i mean by those three things okay most of the people that want to talk about it um, and, and I'm not, I love all three of these groups. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not disparaging any, any of these three groups, but most of the people that want to talk about it are members of our churches. They're usually silent. They're usually quiet about their real questions or beliefs about this stuff, because this is not the safest thing to just raise your hand at midweek and go, Hey, um, is there critical race theory in my church? Um, you know, that's just not, you're not going to do that. Um, by the way, you said something, Joey, that I wanted to just, this will help a little bit. The definition of progressive theology by nature is meant to be hard to pin down. It's very frustrating. It is, it is a theology that is meant to be vague, elusive, and actually by nature confused with orthodox beliefs. So it's it's all in the in the way they present it. So it's very difficult. So if you you generally have a feeling something's off in your church, but you can't put your finger on it, and then when you put your finger on it, someone says, "Well, you're you're just an alarmist," and you, then you go, "Well, wait a second. I, so you just fine. I'm not going to say anything. And so few people know about it that it's like who's it's like going to my mechanic and saying, Hey, I, I know more about my transmission than you do. It's just a joke. It's like, you feel like an idiot. So, but the, the, the members, families, college students, uh, they have been asking me, gosh, talk about this more. Members are asking one big question in the ICLC round. In my opinion, this is all just my opinion and my experience. So I'm just one man. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying this is what I'm experiencing. They're asking one big question that is, can we please clarify our beliefs right now? Like, for instance, Darren, I know that we are, this is what members are saying, I know that we are a complementarian church. But every time I try to talk about it, I get tons of vague answers. No one will say what we believe or what we don't believe. Or I know homosexuality is a sin, I mean, I, I'm not, that's in scripture very clearly. But when I ask my evangelist or when I ask it, I, I email the teacher or this, that, and the other thing, and I get these long, vague answers. Can we please say what we mean about that? Now, the people that most of the time, the people that don't want to talk about it, quite frankly, are leaders. They don't want to hassle with this stuff. Um and so you can see the tension. Members, a lot of members do, a lot of leaders don't. I think still embedded very deeply in our DNA is we shouldn't talk about anything that doesn't automatically lead to more growth and baptisms. Now, what's frustrating for me about that is that this does lead to more growth and baptisms. <laughs> um, but I I find it frustrating. So I've now I'm I'm not gonna say all leaders feel like that because I've been invited into um I've probably spoken in about 10 different churches out in the Midwest and on the East Coast. And every time I speak about it, I've got a workshop that I do, and it's overwhelmingly positively received. I have a way of explaining this stuff that is very disarming, relieving in the sense that people know what it is. They know the questions to ask their children. They know the questions to talk about with their friends. Uh, so I just... It's been an uphill battle, honestly, with some leaders, because I think, and, and by the way, maybe, maybe because some leaders and members don't even agree with me. Um, so that's, I'm totally open to that. But the, the, the group that has surprised me the most, I will be honest with you, is the younger people. 
by far the people pleading with me to talk about this more is the younger people. Um, I spoke, I've spoken to, I counted it up the other day. I think I've spoken to close to a thousand college students. I don't know if any of you were at the ICMC in Oklahoma City. I did a whole class there with 350 people and they were all ministers of the ICOC. Absolutely, not 100%, that's not fair to say, but mostly, wow, this is our world. The older members don't want to talk about it. My evangelist doesn't want to talk about it. I'm not in charge of my church, so I can't make it happen. But Darren, you need to keep having this conversation. And honestly, Joey, that's why I'm making that website biblically resilient. Um, three college students approached me and said, well, 60 emailed me after the ICMC. That's a lot of emails from college students. Wow. Um, but three of them specifically said, "If you said you need a website built. We're in. They're building it for me. It's, mm. uh, it's just a lot of young people. So I think we've got to, we've got to at least have this conversation. I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying I'm just correct, but I think too many ministers are putting their head in the sand and saying, come on, this isn't a big deal. Or they say, if I talk about it, it'll slow things down. Now, I got a little theory about that. If you don't talk about it and you just keep baptizing, especially young people, you could be baptizing very faulty ideas right straight into your church. So if we don't yeah. if we don't even know the question to ask young people, or if ministers don't know how to be confident from the pulpit and preach clearly about this stuff, then we're not going to grow. Um, yeah. So I, I think those those are the things that have surprised me, but it's been very well received. I I have to be honest and say I've had my critics too, but but it's mostly it's been people um, I've I've gotten. Uh, contact from people outside the ICOC. So I just think in America, there is a general question about where's all this stuff taking us? How is it seeping into my church? How is my church reading the Bible? Um, and to be very clear with all of you, I, I have what's called a high view of the Bible. I, it is, it stands above all our ideas, all our, all our philosophies, all of it. Um, and we use the Bible to filter those, not those to filter the Bible. And, yeah. and if you don't get that straight, you can do all the teaching you want mm -hmm. and you can really do some damage in your church. So, um, yeah. 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 Well, you, and you know, the data you've mentioned, uh, damage and where America is at overall right now and how, yeah, we all like growth and baptisms. So I might hear progressive and think this is the the future and i i want to baptize people and reach out to the culture so maybe this is the way to go but what what does the data say well the data is tricky um because we don't track well we don't track anything like this in our church um by the way i think in our church when i say our church i mean the icoc i we i think we are in what's known as a liminal moment. A liminal moment is just you're on the threshold of something. Um, I think we are in a defining moment in our church of as we move forward for the next 10, 15 years, um, what's going to define us? Um, you know, and I, so I think it's really important for us to, to at least have this conversation I was on it. I don't know how many of you guys were on the evangelist service call a couple months ago, and they were talking about church growth. Uh, I think the guy, I think it was, I forget who it was that, it, that said, Hey, the truth is in America and Canada, we're not growing at all outside of America, of Canada, there is growth. And what we did in that call, what I heard was a lot of mechanics, a lot of, you know, um, strategy, which are all good. There's places for mechanics and structure and strategy. But I got to tell you, um, one thing right under our nose is the American church is not growing because we refuse to have this conversation. Um, so progressive theology 
pretends to be an on-ramp into the church. In other words, if you if you just broaden the, the boundaries a little bit, more people will be attracted to the church. What it ends up being, invariably, is an off-ramp. People leave the church because you can never, if you if you commit to that path, you literally can never be progressive enough. You, it's a losing game. Progressive theology, which is based on radical postmodern thought, is in has an insatiable appetite. It seeks to dominate everything you do. So if you go down that road, what happens is the progressive people, you never become progressive enough for them. Then they leave. But before they leave, the conservative people in your church leave because they're so frustrated. And pretty soon you've got a shell of your former church and you're going, wait a second, I thought we... Uh, so there's a guy named Glenn Stanton that I found that wrote a book called The Myth of the Dying Church. And there's a lot of data in that book. And what he says uh, is that most... Now, it's he's he's talking about the, uh, the greater evangelical world, but most church growth still to this day and over the last 20, 30 years are are coming from churches that have a, a very, very conservative view of the Bible. Uh, the ones that don't are not, not only are they not growing, they're shrinking and some of them are even closing their doors. Um, so I think without all the data specifically, what I have found is that the trends, and we're still early in the ICLC, but the trends are if you commit to a progressive path, and I say when I say progressive, I mean dangerous progressive. I want to I want to define that real quick. Progressive can be good. In other words, innovative, creative, um, different ways to do mission, all the things that we want the ICOC to be better at. Right. In one sense, that could, that's progressive. When I say progressive, though, I mean theology that subscribes to a constantly progressing idea of truth. Um, to keep up with modern culture. Uh, that's what I mean by progressive. So the ones that commit to that don't grow. Um, the ones that stay healthy in, in a progressive way um, by being create, being missionally creative in a way that doesn't violate scripture, but holding people to scripture, talking about sin and righteousness, talking about lordship and discipleship, all the things that a progressive church thinks are really dumb words, those churches are actually growing still to this day, and they will continue. Um, what we don't understand in America, and if we don't square ourselves with this, we're in real trouble. We are becoming a cultural minority. And it's going to get worse in the coming years. I mean, it's going to get much worse. But if you if you look in your Bible God never apologized for that. In fact, the more the church in in over history became pressed in on by culture and they resisted, the more they grew. They just did. Um, they didn't shrink. They actually exploded with growth. Uh, so I think we we've, we've got to get our we got to see the forest through the trees and see if we want to grow and grow radically. It starts with letting the Bible speak for itself, unapologetically preaching it, clearly preaching it, not apologizing for it, and not letting culture change it. And by the way, the, the ideas in culture, the prevailing ideas in culture change every 20 to 30 years anyway. So why would we why would we put all our marbles in those baskets anyway? Uh, the Bible never changes. Its truth is, is timeless and amazing. So uh, long, long answer though, but most progressive churches are not shrinking. And by the way, I tell a story in my book of Eastlake Church in Seattle. I think it's in chapter five. Um, it grew to 9,000 members in 10 years. And the minute they went gay affirming, they shrunk. It's a The church almost doesn't exist these days. So even in a progressive city like Seattle, people walk straight out the back door when they became gay affirming. Um, and every time a progressive pastor does that, he's always surprised at why aren't there just large crowds in my church? Because um, people, they just don't want that. Um, it's, it's a path to, to shrinking and, and dying.
And that's Satan's goal, I think. So. Wow. Yeah. And well, I, you know, I think of Satan's goal, certainly it's, it's had a toll when we deal with progressive theology. Um, it's had a toll on our, our mental health, all of these cultural issues, um, critical race theory or gender or deconstruction yep. usually come with and are compounded by mental health. And at the same time, our members, uh, they might hear progressive theo theology and say, I don't care about that, but mental health. Yes. So let's talk about it. Um, and it's good to talk about that. What, a and then you, Darren, you, you sat on the, the minister's health committee. Is yep. that right? So yes. you got a great perspective on this. How do you see, um, how do you see it having an impact on mental health and people trying to engage in these progressive theology discussions? Well, dude, this is one of the best questions you could ask. This is it. Um, this is where we need to get our head out of the sand. You know, over the last 30 to 40 years, research into mental health has shown it's, it's that we have, we are right now in a mental health crisis. You ask any therapist, any Christian therapist, we are in a full-blown mental health crisis. But the, the ability for children to exist and grow up with a healthy worldview has everything to do with how biblically resilient they are. Do they, are they strong, emotionally strong based on the principles of Scripture? And... Um, and you know what resiliency is. It's the ability to come through when things don't go your way, which they often don't, right? So progressive theology is adversely affecting mental health because it is based on radical postmodern thinking as its foundational thought. So there's, if you're looking for a good book to read, it's by, uh, it's by, Height, I think it's Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukanoff. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. And if you, I think anybody who leads a college ministry needs to read this because they say that, that there's, there's three lies that society is telling people. This is what progressive thought tells people, okay? And when I talk to college ministers about this, their jaw hits the floor because they're like, this is what I'm going through. Basically, Progressive teaching is causing kids to go into cognitive distortions. Let me let me tell you what that means. When you go to see a counselor, you you usually have something called a cognitive distortion, which means you you're not seeing the world the right way. You're you're connecting the wrong dots. So what a counselor does is try to coach you out of a cognitive distortion into a better map of the world, right? So healthy patterns not cognitive distorted patterns so they say that and this really opened my eyes they say that the radical postmodern thought is destroying the health of our kids by by promoting three great untruths their feelings are always right number one they should avoid pain and discomfort number two and they should always look for faults in others not themselves that's the foundation a progressive thought. Um, and when I, when I, when I explain how this, all this stuff works to college ministers, they're like, dude, this is, this is my life. Um, you can see it in a lot of younger people today. And I, I don't even want to say it's the younger people, uh, but you can see it uh, very feelings based. If I don't feel like something's right in my church, there's something wrong in my church. Wait a second. Hold on a second. Your feelings are subordinate. You can't, you can't, your feelings are important, but it's a cognitive distortion to think that my, your church has to submit to your feelings. Is it not? I mean, if you just, if you just unpack those three questions with all of your young people, you can, you can really help them think clearly about things. It takes time. And I think this is why ministers don't want to do it. Uh, but another thing that I thought, though, there's a book I called that that was written by a, a Catholic scholar named Nicole Maring, Noel Maring, not Nicole. And it's called Awake, Not Woke. And it's it's a real deep dive into the thinking of progressive thought. And she, point, she points out something. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. 
Progressive thought is based on two fundamental questions that have to do with identity, okay? And if you get these two questions wrong, you go down the wrong path. If you get them right, you can you go down a healthy path of a Christian worldview. The two questions are this. One has to do with self. One has to do with community. The first one is, um, the first question that progressive thought asks is in life, what do I desire? Well, that's problematic because the scriptures say the first question we need to ask as a disciple is what does God desire of me? You get those two questions, you get that first question wrong, then self becomes about, it's a dramatic turn inward. It becomes about you. It becomes about your experience. You can see America struggling with this in the sense that everything about identity right now is what I feel. Um, we are in a full-blown identity crisis in America. Started, and we have decided it has to do with sexual identity. Well, what happens if someone doesn't feel like a boy these days? We have to treat them like a girl. You, there is nothing that drives them deeper into a horrible mental health than allowing them to ask that question the wrong way. Uh, the second question has to do with community because we all are a part of a church, right? Well, progressive thought asks this question. How have I been hurt? So as I approach community, the question is, how, have, how has someone hurt me? Well, that's really problematic, too, because the biblical question about community is, how have I hurt God and others? And how does he help me reconcile that to where I can be in harmony with God and others? Again, it's a dramatic turn inward. So if we get those two questions wrong and we don't challenge the supposition of those two questions, but we don't help leaders know how to, to parse out those questions with their church, that over time we will build a church based on feelings, desire. And what does that remind you of? The society we live in. If you don't want to be in a community or if some you can see it in young people today, and I actually older people too, but uh, there's a really good place for healthy deconstruction of faith. I believe that. I talk about that in my book. I don't think we should ever say deconstruction is just a sin. The problem is, because of the two questions I just mentioned, because of those two questions I just mentioned, um, deconstruction is now either deconversion or demolishing the church. Um, you know, if you if you if you get those two questions wrong and then you get baptized, and let's face it, guys, we can take anybody through the Bible studies and not really address their worldview. At least, at least a lot of our younger members and leaders can. But we better be careful with that because if you baptize people that still have that worldview, church life becomes about desire, community comes about. If anything happens to me, something outside of me has wronged me. And I'm seeing it. Every time, I mean, it, even discipleship these days is really difficult because if you confront someone's actions or their behavior in a church or their lack of lordship in a church, it can sometimes be World War III. Um, and we've got to start teaching our church how Satan has embedded himself in the basic questions of identity, parsing it out with our leaders, helping them preach more clearly about it, more, more lovingly about it, but challenging Satan from the pulpit and saying, look, this is what's real. If you understand what's going on in, the, in, in progressive thought, you can easily apply scripture to resist it. Um, someone asked me in the chat bar, do I address those two questions in my book? I don't. Um, I, the, the mirroring book has really helped me. It's a pretty deep read, I'll warn you, but it's really worth it. But I read that after I did some other research. But I do talk about um, uh, the coddling of the American mind. And there's a guy that does a, a little excerpt in my book named Sean St. Jean, who is a licensed therapy, a therapist. And he elaborates on why, it's, why progressive thought is so... Um, horrible for our mental health 
the truth is if we challenge people, if we teach people to have a healthy Christian worldview and go to the scriptures before the information that society is feeding us, over time, mental health improves. I believe I'm not trying to oversimplify it. I'm just saying, I'm just saying God's way is superior to, to the way that Satan is teaching kids to think these days. Um, and I got to tell you, I'll, I'll just reiterate what I said. When I go speak, I spoke at a church about a Midwest church. It has about 400 people in it. And I, I spoke on a Sunday on this topic and I was terrified because it's a very diverse church. It's got, I mean, th these aren't things you just get up in the pulpit and go, this is going to be fun to talk about, right? But I tell you, I had Q&A, which is also dangerous. But one of the guys right on the right side of the, he raised his hand and he was, he was a young guy. And I said, yeah, young man, what do you, and he stood up. He said, I'm 16 years old. I just got baptized about six months ago. Every single thing you said today, is my world. And I come to church week in and week out and nobody will address it and nobody will challenge it. And I'm begging for more instruction and training in this stuff. And that's, what's frustrating for me is, um, you know, look, I, I don't think leaders have to talk about this or have me talk about it or anything, but we run the risk of, of our young people being really frustrated with us because we're not courageous enough to stand up and say, Hey guys, this is how this works. In other, I read a scripture the other day, Psalm 119, 18. It says, open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. If we could just, if we could just help our kids see that, that uh, society has a place, it has a role, but all value and meaning is found within your creator, in your imago day, you don't need anything else. Um, we would, we would actually be, be literally putting people back on the path to better mental health. But this is it, Joey, this is a big question. I'm glad you asked it. I really am. Well, th those questions are golden. I, I wrote them down and I can see already how to engage the discussion with so many disciples and your book really emboldens me that we can't expect people to be courageous with this in the workplace if we aren't courageous with it in the church or from the pulpit. Um, I think I'd skip to my last question and then we can hear a few questions from everybody else. But you mentioned um, cultural conversation partners in your book. And so how do we have this discussion, not in the church, but with the coworkers and with our culture? Yeah. Well... This is really a great, it's something I talk about in the book as an evangelistic strategy. And it's as old as, um, oh, it's called Awake Not Woke, the, the book. It's by Noelle Mearing. She's a Catholic scholar. Uh, it's, it's brilliant. Um, but the way I frame it in the book is when Paul walked into Athens in Acts 17, he basically saw he was distressed because he saw that the city was so full of idols. And as you know, in, in, in Greek, Greek philosophy, Greek thinking, Greek mythology, it wasn't because it, they did not lack gods. They lacked the understanding of the path to the right God, the true God. So Paul walks through, he's like, man, this place is full of idols. There's all kinds of things. And he sits down with them and he, re he reasons with them brilliantly, respectfully. He basically says, hey, guys, you are actually worshiping. You're, you're looking for the sovereign creator guy that I found. And he's, he's relational. He's on your side. He is invested in your life and your emotions. He because he created you. All these things that you think are God are not God. And so he took he took the what he found in Athens and he pointed it straight to God the Creator masterfully. Well, look, there is so much potential, even in things like sexual identity. 
if we could just help people, and I'm working, I, I'm working on some Bible studies that might do this, but if we could help people go, look, what you read, I understand where you're at. I understand what you're thinking. I sympathize, empathize, all of it. I'm with you. I'm in your corner. But what you have to understand is that you're doing what humans are designed to do, which is look for meaning. And, and who are they in this world? And you are being sold a lie that says your meaning is in your sexual identity. And by the way, can we just admit God created sexuality? Humans created sexual identity. God didn't want us to be defined by our sex. He created two biological sexes, but he didn't say that's the sum total of who you are. We are going to regret this as an American society that we've, that we've gone down this roads with so much gusto. But if you just take someone who's struggling with their sexual identity, you, it is, you can brilliantly show them that what they're really searching for is the meaning found in the way God created them. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. That's a conversation partner. Race is a conversation partner. Politics. Um, politics is a big old struggle for power and authority, which has always made men crazy and then the downfall of societies. Well, we can take out the scriptures and really talk to them about ultimate authority, um, the freedom that comes from the Lordship of Jesus, all those things that we're searching for, but we're searching for it with men. And in men, not God. So I think if we if we all got our heads together and say, how can we resist this stuff? It's teed up for us. Um, the scriptures address all of it. So the scripture addresses mental health. It addresses all of it. Find creative ways to use the scripture to partner with what people are actually feeling and going through. Not tell them they're crazy. We should never treat people like that. Not tell them that they don't have any dignity and we shouldn't respect them and love them, but tell them that we've been there too and we want to show you that real, true meaning, value, and significance is found in God and not in um, the secular ideas of society. So that's what I call a, a, a conversation partner. I can't wait for those Bible studies to come out. That sounds know, awesome, right? bro. And uh, biblicallyresilient.com. That's what you're working on, right? Yes. It's a, honestly, Joey, it's a lot like renew. It's not going to be nearly that involved, but it, basically here's what I've decided. I'm not going to write another book right now, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to do what we're not doing. And I'm going to, I'm going to invite people in. In fact, if anybody on this call wants to be a part of it, I could use Joey wrote a great article for me. I could use I could use contributors. I could use we're all in this together. But what it's going to be is we're just going to tackle some of these things. We're going to we're going to have very positive forward thinking articles about life and faith and family. Oh, I got to tell you, um, families right now are terrified. I mean, families with young children are 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 especially asking me for for more training. In fact, we created a workshop called, Carl and I created a workshop called Biblically Resilient Parenting in a Confused and Complex World. And what it does is it's it's a few classes that basically tell people all the stuff I just explained about the questions about life and identity and meaning. It talks about the world they live in and how we as parents can be equipped to actually navigate them through them and build a healthy Christian worldview. We we can't parent anymore like it's 1999. Like we we can't just, you know, have a devo, discipline your children, go to church. Their kids are immersed. And I mean immersed in faulty thinking. And if we don't know and parents don't even have the tools, they don't even know what it's called, they don't know. I've only done we this was one we've only done one time and it was here in Tampa and people Loved it. So I think that's what biblically resilient is, is I, I want us, I want to, I want to start putting out some resources, some articles. I've got things to say to the preachers, but what we're taking the, the, the topics of our day and then 
helping people think through them in these articles. And I think it's going to, and Sean St. Jean just sent me one. He's, he just wrote an article about how progressive thought damages your mental health. And he's got a really good take on it. So I think we need disciples today doesn't offer this. There's a lot, our, our people need a place to go as a portal for really conservative, healthy stuff. And that's what this is going to be. So when it launches, I'll send you the link. I'll probably ask you guys to write stuff. Um, so stay tuned for that because this is, it's all just going to be church leaders and volunteers and, and, and it's going to have some resources for families on there too. So it's going to be a while to really, I got to build some momentum, but it's, it's probably coming out in the next three weeks or so. Anyone else have a few questions for Darren? How do we change the narrative? I mean, everything, even the name, I mean, we allow progressive versus, I mean, it seems like it should be deconstructive theology, not progressive theology. It's, it, they, it's spun to make it sound like it's really cool. And if, if we embrace it and keep using the terminology, I mean, I even turned to my wife for a second ago and I go, are we complementarian or egalitarian? Because complementarian sounds like we're, we, everything's welcome. I mean, our narrative is, seems to be lost out there. And I think we can get confused as to what's good and what isn't. And if we change that, and I don't know, I mean, it just sounds, it sounds so simple and it's like, oh yeah, but, but many times how we, you know, when we lose the narrative, when we lose the, the the image and our images of a old guy bent over with a cane you know yelling at somebody and that's the image that someone portrays of god we can't shake it because they've created the narrative if we change it and, and, be, and lead with our own narrative or title or whatever we yeah. want to call it i don't know i'm just throwing that out there is there a way to to stop this progressive flow <laughs> well i think it's a uh... Richard, that's a great question. Um, I think websites like mine, Renew, Joey's Disciple Maker, I mean, just just not, you know, we got to counter this stuff, but we can't, we've got to just put conservative material out there. And I have, honestly, if I had one goal, this is what it would be. I would just, if I could just talk to leaders, um, the people who are discipling the hearts and minds in our churches and just talk through this stuff and help them understand how it works. And it's a very positive thing. We, we could, we could turn the narrative around by bringing, once people know what they're involved with, it brings a lot of hope and comfort. And by the way, I am neither there's, there's three, well, there's two typical responses to culture. One is, um, to condemn culture. One is to conform to culture, two opposite ends. When you condemn, you just isolate. Let's just build a wall around the church and nothing gets in. Well, good luck with that because we have this thing now called social media that, that penetrates any walls. But then I don't, if you just accommodate, you end up over time conforming. It's called, it's what theologians call unthinking conformity. You wake up one day and you've conformed to the culture. Condemnation is negative. Conforming is, conforming is just optimistic about culture. I am neither negative or optimistic. I'm really hopeful because the scriptures we hold in our hands are the key to everything. So if, if we could just educate leaders and help them understand how it works and help them understand the questions their members are asking, what's underneath the things that are seeping into this church, it would really help a lot. Um, and then we just we just lead with good biblical resources and stuff. The Bible needs no help to, to change people. I, I definitely don't want to go around and just warn everybody all the time. I definitely want to, but, but, I, but I'm, what I'm trying to do now is get people's attention. And I, that's hard because some people say, ah, Darren, you're just, you're from Seattle, man. You're just, the place is weird, you know. Uh, Seattle and Portland, those things. Look, it just happened in Atlanta, Georgia. I, I, have, I have an article coming out about Andy Stanley. Um, 
the most influential evangelical guy. Our, every one of our people know him or have a book. And he fell right into the progressive trap about homosexuality. And he's confusing everybody. And look, I'm telling you, none of us are immune to this. So I think we've got to change the narrative by being courageous and talking about it in a way that really helps people and equips them. Thank you, Darren. I, think we need to, I, I have one more thing to say. It's quick. I think we need to continue to support and empower young people like Joey and Madison. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think they're young people that get it and they're faithful and they're, they're trying to change the narrative and turn it back to the right things. And um, that's what, that's what we need to do. This is getting traction. The more I talk about it, the more I go and speak about it, people go, oh, that's not what I thought you were going to do. This is really helpful. Um, I don't raise the temperature. Um, I lower the temperature and give people good language with which to address it. And they really appreciate it. So, yeah, I'll send you some stuff. And I think that's what love is. Love does that. Yep. Love and concern. For the truth. I really appreciate um, the many years that has gone into this and the time and the effort and you continuing this. Um, mm. I think it's definitely, we've definitely been impacted here um, in Bend, which is kind of a more conservative area of Oregon, I'd say, but it's, it's still very, very prevalent. Um, and yeah, and so I just appreciate that. I think it's something I was kind of introduced to a few years back for a lot of reasons. Um, and there's this um book called mama bear apologetics i don't know if that's something you've heard about or i've, I've, I've seen it yeah. i haven't read it i've, seen, I've heard good things about it yeah they do um kind of a general apologetics one and then there was a second one they wrote about specifically around sexuality and it's something that's been really encouraging to me this topic and you know your book and and these similar books like that because i really see this movement of um like our generation becoming young parents and kind of realizing like, I do not want my kids falling in line with what I see around me. Um, so what can I do? And just really, um, I don't know, consuming as much as we can to really know how to prepare our kids for this, yeah. because it is so true. Like the things that we may have been, you know, teased for in middle school or elementary school being kingdom kids. Like it is nothing like the things that our kids are going to go through when they enter school and enter those places um, to be people who love Jesus and who live life differently than the world. I think you're very right that it, it's, it's not going to get any better. It's only going, it's going this one direction. And I appreciate you talking about that, that um, the more that we have resisted culture, that's when, when the church grows, I think I really see that. I see a lot of young mothers, especially becoming very vocal about this because yep. they're so yep. adamant. Like I refuse to drink this Kool-Aid for lack of better example. But um, yeah, so I just appreciate the work that's gone into this and the time and making time for us tonight. So thank you, Darren. Yes. Thank you all for joining and we'll share the notes. Yeah.